Good morning from Zurich. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday with me, Tyler Brule. Coming up on today's programme, Juliet Lindley is here, also Chandra Kurt. They've got their views, they've got some wine samples, many things, but Juliet is beside me at the table here. There's crashing of dishes in the background. Not your dishes, though, Juliet. Good morning. Good morning. Tell me, what have you got for us today? Well, the Swiss are voting in yet more referenda. I'll okay. give you a little update on that. Climate law as well as corporate taxes. I'll give you my take on Art Basel. I did nip down there for one day. And um, how about what's the love and loathe, but more loathe about Berlusconismo. Yes, we're also going to be talking to our Ed Stalker from Milan about that as well. We're also going to be heading to Bangkok. Sawadikar, this is Gwen Robinson in Bangkok, and I'll be joining you later to update on some intriguing developments on the political and diplomatic front in Thailand and beyond. Also, we'll find out what's making headlines at Haaretz newspaper in Israel. Plus, we'll speak to Aurelia Rauch also about Art Basel. It's the 18th of June, 2023, live from Zurich. This is Monocle on Sunday. Live from Zurich, this is Monocle on Sunday with Tyler Brulé. And good morning from an absolutely stunning Zurich this morning. Cloudless, the streets are sparkling clean. I was just comparing notes with Chandra. Chandra, there was some type of festival this weekend. Like, yeah, we, we I don't know if we need to go into the festival components of it. But anyway, Zurich is restored because it was a bit scary on the trams last night when I was coming back from well, I think the whole Switzerland came to Zurich. There was the Pride and then there was other manifestation. And um, I live in the middle of the city in front of a tram station. And of course, there are poubelles. And they were, you know, they were like covered by garbage. But this morning I woke up like at 5.45 because there were some bottle noises. And what I see, they were cleaning the city. So the, the, the city sent already people and it, it looks like nothing happened. Good. And hopefully smells like nothing happened. Well, not yet. It didn't rain yet. So It didn't rain yet. And they didn't have the street cleaners out. Juliet, good morning. I don't know if you, morning. you, if you, well, you were in town last night. I was, it, I was out it, for it, dinner and it, it did reek of beer everywhere and other things. And other but things. Um, it is such a great vibe, Zurich in the summer. And you see people walking around with their surfboards and barefoot going to do yoga at the crack of dawn on the lake. It's so nice. You feel like you're living in... Tel Aviv or Rio? In Tel Aviv, well, yeah, maybe I'll take Rio over Tel Aviv, maybe, maybe at least at, the, at this time. And we will, as I said, we'll be going to uh, uh, talk to Haaretz newspaper a little bit uh, later in the program uh, as well. I'm also happy to say that uh, we're heading to Milan in more ways than one. We're heading there right now because our Ed Stalker's there. I'm heading to Milan tomorrow morning, bright and early, because also we have a little bit of an event on in Milan uh, tomorrow evening as well. Uh, buongiorno, Ed. Good morning, Tyler. Looking forward to seeing you tomorrow. I know, absolutely. Now tell us, uh, maybe we'll start with you. Uh, if I was to uh, flip open the pages, the Corriere this morning, La Repubblica, if I would have looked at yesterday's edition of Il Sole 24, uh, what's happening in Italy? Well, obviously, there's still sort of the aftermath of, you know, this huge week in Italian politics that we had, which, of course, as you mentioned at the top of the hour, was the passing of a man, love him or hate him. And, uh, you know, Italy is pretty much divided amongst those two things. He, he dominated uh, political life, business life, and, of course, uh, uh, the scandal pages of uh, tabloids as well. I, of course, am talking about Silvio Berlusconi and you know, we can maybe later look into his record. We mentioned uh, a little bit of that again at the top of the show. But uh, what really has happened since uh, his passing on Monday, uh, as well, of course, uh, as him having a state funeral, has been a sort of a little bit of navel gazing, I guess, about the future of his party, Forza Italia. This sort of populist party that swept in in 1994 when he first 
was prime minister and sort of took almost a slogan from the football pitch, Forza Italia, uh, and brought this new style of politics to Italy in the aftermath of a huge political scandal, which which basically saw the demise in the 90s of the Christian Democrats and the socialists. Berlusconi swept into this void with this sort of TV-led politics, you know, appearing in a video message for his uh, candidacy. And, you know, in Italy... And it's a bit of a euphemism today, really. They talk about the centre-right, you know, the coalition that's in power with Giorgio Maloney, uh, the far-right Fratelli d'Italia, Brothers of Italy. They talk about this centre-right coalition. But really, Italian politics has moved a lot further to the right. And now that Berlusconi has passed, he was the original sort of centre-right uh, kingmaker. Uh, the big question is what happens to his party? In, you know, in recent elections, it only got eight percent, down from around thirty-five or thirty-six, I believe, at its peak. So there's big question marks about who will lead the party, especially he, as he was such a dominant figure, and whether that party disappears altogether. And and I guess really Tyler seeds ground uh, to the aforementioned brothers of Italy and the Lega party. Juliet, uh, you've been commenting, uh, you've been around the microphone on this topic this week as well. So here we are. It's it's weekend. It's the weekend period, of course. This is the time of reflection when all the newspapers can take a breath uh, and, and really write the big set pieces about the legacy of this leader, what he's meant for Italy, of course, what he's meant for, for Europe and the EU, and of course, what he's meant for, for the world uh, as, as well. And where do you think we are six days on on this topic? What he's meant for the world. It's so unfortunate that the only words that are always associated with him are bunga bunga. It's such an unfortunate term. But aside from that, I mean, the jury is still out on what, what will his legacy be aside from um, his uh, sexual shenanigans and everything. But it was so interesting in Repubblica, they were saying it's so symbolic, isn't it, that the patriarch that Silvio was has died just as a woman is prime minister of Italy for the first time. And when there's a tough opposition leader who's also a woman um, right now leading the PD, and neither are known for their good looks. And I'm saying this simply because you could always pick out the Forza Italia MPs because they were the pretty ones or they were the ones that he had literally chosen as if he were casting for a TV show. Being the TV mogul that he was, that seemed to be the main focus was on how they looked. And, you know, Giorgia Meloni, she's a great example of populism, but she's playing it really smartly. And she's acting really sort of responsible and respectable at the moment. She's being a respectable conservative as fiscally um, prudent as Mario Draghi, her, her predecessor. She's, she's taking the anti-Russian stance. And we, meanwhile, she is ruthlessly implementing uh, far-right policies, as Ed was saying, very far-right, not center-right. And um, it, she's also starting to capture state TV. So, you know, Berlusconi may be dead, but a smarter female version of populism is running the country, effectively for now. Ed, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting what you say. Obviously, Berlusconi had his own TV channels in Mediaset, and we've seen uh, this very public uh, bid by Maloney to shake up the top leadership of Rai, to sort of shape uh, the public service broadcaster in her image. That, that's been super interesting to see how she's done that. Uh, Definitely, uh, she's implementing some far-right policies. Just look at the way she's dealing with the issue of migration and boats in the Mediterranean uh, trying to save stranded refugees. Um, 
But at the same time, uh, you know, some people were surprised at, at, at the stance she's taken at home, uh, being, uh, you know, wanting to stay very much within the European Union whether, when there were question marks in the past about Euroscepticism. Also, the, the sort of thorny issue of Russia. We saw how Berlusconi talked about Putin being this dear friend who sent him vodka and he sent wine from Lombardia back in return. Uh, an embarrassment to Maloney, really, the statements he made uh, not long before his death about Putin uh, and Russia. Uh, at the same time, uh, you know, Maloney uh, and Italy has got into trouble with the European Union for not spending uh, the recovery funds, this huge amount of money. Italy is the biggest recipient of recovery funds, and yet uh, it hasn't been spending all the money it's been allocated, which is just bizarre, the fact that it can't allocate this amazing windfall it's had, uh, and the fact that this third tranche that it's meant to have received has been delayed because of these issues. So um, I don't know if that's Euroscepticism or what that is, or an inability of the government to spend this money that could really be uh, targeted in improving uh, many things, in, including its justice system, which the European Union wants to see. Uh, so a mixed record, but she's been stable enough. And, and, and certainly uh, she's in a super strong position because there is really no one who, uh, uh, who could really uh, tackle her in terms of opposition at the moment, despite obviously the fact that Ellie Schlein is the new leader of the Democratic Party. Uh, just before we go, because uh, you brought up the topic of, of gifting wine uh, between leaders, because uh, I want to go to Chandra in a moment. But you've been talking about political futures, uh, Ed, as, as well, and also what this means for Forza Italia. But I just want to maybe also shine a light for a moment also on what this means from a corporate leadership position as well, because you're also talking about you know, as you know, as as many will know, uh, of course, here is someone who built up you know, a significant media empire. I mean, one of one of the biggest players within certainly the European broadcasting scene. And so, I'm wondering what people are saying in terms of what leadership is look is going to look like now. Of course, uh, Mr. Berlusconi was not uh, there involved uh, in day to day editorial decisions, uh, or maybe he was in the background as well. Okay. But uh, what what happens next there? Yeah, I don't think huge amount changes there, to be honest with you. Of course, he managed to sort of uh, change laws while he was prime minister to make sure he was able to hang on to his assets. He was very gifted at doing that. That's part of the reason he basically uh, managed to avoid being uh, found guilty of so many prosecutions that he was involved in. Uh, but yeah, Tyler, you, you rightly mentioned this is someone who uh, ha has an astounding uh, sort of uh, amount of assets uh, to his name, uh, namely like I mentioned a little bit earlier, the Mediaset private uh, TV channels. And of course, Italy's big biggest uh, publisher, Mondadori. Um, you know, the family uh, has, um, you know, there's obviously there's Finivest, his investment company. So that's uh, involved in that. They have a majority stake in Mondadori, as I, as I mentioned. Uh, but he has key family members uh, who are in positions within all those different uh, holdings that he has. So I don't expect anything to change. Obviously, uh, one would assume that he was still very involved uh, behind the scenes uh, in all of those entities. And of course, just like in politics, there will be a void when you have uh, such a big character, such a charismatic character, uh, despite all his faults, who's no longer around. So uh, there may well be a search for, for new talent within those companies. But in terms of the day to day running, uh, I expect it to, to stay the same, Tyler. Uh, Ed, thanks for and just uh, stay with us because, uh, as we said, Chandra is here. Uh, Chandra's not been here for a few weeks. Chandra, you've been you've been busy. You've been out 
in the world. This is, of course, our listeners should know that, of course, you're the editor of the Wine Cellar. You're, of course, uh, a, a wine consultant and aficionado for anyone who's joining us who's not been listening to this program for the past few years uh, and reading the pages of our magazine as well. Uh, so what does the wine circuit look like at this time of year in that May-June period? Where is Chandra Kurt uh, spending her time? Well, she's suffering a lot these, these days because it's the, the tasting days. So I do a yearly wine guide, which is called the Wine Cellar. And it happened since 25 years that we put the tasting period May, June, beginning of July. So meaning I'm slowly, I'm in the middle now, so I'm, I'm tasting a lot of wines. And every time when you start, you see the mountain, now in the middle. But uh, it, it's it's a beautiful when it's finished, but it's a hell of a work. And this takes you to where? Uh, principally France, but you, you land in Spain, or are you in Italy as well, all over, no, uh, certainly from a European well, context? Well, there's a parallel work. There's the magazine. For the magazine, I travel. I was a lot in France now, uh, and uh, in Italy, and also in Switzerland. We visit some wineries, but the book is mainly the, the core assortment of the wines that are drunk in Switzerland. And as we know, we drink, of course, a lot of our own wines, but then from all over, we are a very developed market, so a lot of Italian, Spanish, French, um, um, what do we have else? Uh, Austrian, the, the New World, like California, is not so much, but maybe Central Europe is is the is the core the core wines we taste. Excellent. Well, of course, listeners will know what happens now. Chandra's on standby. We have Emma in London. Uh, we have Juliet. We have Ed. You all have to give a brief to Chandra. She'll respond later in the program, uh, of course, with some recommendations uh, and how you might want to and, and and where you might want to consume wine. Emma, uh, you know how this works. Uh, what are you looking for from Chandra today? Good morning, Chandra. It's lovely to have you on the programme. Um, so we've had a week of beautiful, glorious, uninterrupted hot sun here in the United Kingdom. It's been delightful. There's been a lot of rosé. Uh, the weather changes today. So could you give me a wine to drink in the rain? Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, Julia, I believe you've got a... Julia, so you've been trying to work on a party date. I know that. Uh, and you're trying to align, align diaries up and down the Gold Coast. Uh, but uh, but maybe maybe you're not looking but for... But what a wines will I serve? Is that your question? No, but I have a different I don't know. question you, for go, Then go for it. Go for I want to know, Chandra, how does someone stay sober in the job that you do? And what are your surefire tips for curing hangovers? Surely you're the best person to tell our listeners. But she needs to deliver a wine tip as well for And what is a great wine I can serve on my terrace? in July if I do invite Tyler and a few friends for a party. Am I, am I part of the party? For sure. Well, who's going deli to deliver the wine? I mean, <laughs> Ed in Milan. Can I just say, this sounds like, a, you said it's a really tough time of year, but I have to say, it sounds pretty good to me, just having to travel around the world trying wine. Um, just a little aside there. So, moving swiftly on, um, in terms of a wine, so, it's very hot, as it is in Zurich, I believe, uh, here in Milan. So I'm looking um, for a very cold, minerally white wine. I sort of often go, well, I go for maybe a Francia Corta, if we're going with bubbles, or I'm true to my other half's Veneto origins and might pick out a Suave uh, if I'm going for a, 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 just a standard white wine. So maybe you can, let, let's be faithful to Lombardia if we can and, and select a white wine that's from here or at least nearby. 
That, that's a very okay. focused brief, isn't it, Chandra? It's very focused. <laughs> yeah, okay. But Ed, Ed yeah, is quite focused. Too hard. No, no, it's good, Ed. I, I, I like it. So stick around uh, a little bit later uh, in the program, uh, of course, for, uh, yeah, certainly Chandra's recommendations. Also, I should say, um, Aurelia Rauch has just joined us around the table. Good morning. Good morning, Tyler. Uh, Aurelia is a, a neighbor, uh, a firm fixture. She's also the creative director uh, at Bergos Bank. You're going to talk uh, a little bit uh, about Art Basel. But join in because it's a sunny day. What wine recommendation would you like from Chandra? Oh my God, even, you know, especially now coming from Art Basel, there was so much champagne. And I would like a good recommendation for a small kind of off the beaten track champagne. Hmm. Off the beaten. So you want to stick with the champagne? Yeah, totally. Okay. But like a small vineyard, you know, like a very special, cool producer. I would like to know that. Yeah. No Ruinard, no more. No, no I'm, I'm Ruinard out. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So listen, you are fresh uh, from... Art Basel, Juliet as well. Uh, you were in Basel a little bit earlier in the week. I, I was, I tried to make it. I tried to get you to I come. I know, I, I know. And then <laughs> clients got in the way in Munich, and then I was on my way back from Paris, and then uh, anyway, you're here, and you're going to tell us all about it. What I heard, um, and there was, you know, we have many, uh, of course, people in the art business uh, who have some skin in the game, who come to the cafe, and there was this. It, this real sense of excitement. Of course, your Art Basel was back last year anyway, but there was this sense of just uh, that they'd really sort of blown the doors off this year, just in terms of the buzz, the excitement, the traffic. That's what I heard. You said, of course, the champagne was flowing in the streets, <laughs> uh, but to bring us up to speed on things. Well, I completely agree. I think the energy was tremendous. It was absolutely buzzing. I had a wonderful time. It felt, I mean, you rightfully said last year it was already back, but you know, it was still very much like a COVID feeling. Everybody was, of course, wearing masks. Of course, there was fewer visitors and it was just great this year. It was really back to pre-COVID standards in a lot of ways. They reported, I think, about 90,000 uh, visitors or something like that. I think there were all there on the first day at least it felt like that it was incredibly crowded but nice you know it was a good buzz a lot of friends from the states you saw you know a bit more kind of exchange happening mm, again, and I, mean, I really thought it was great i mean last year of course we heard that the americans were back the europeans were there what i noticed because i was on my way to paris so you know train zurich basel stopped and then you know tgv onwards to paris i was amazed also how many uh Asian customers I yeah. saw on the train. Yeah, Chinese, Koreans, Singaporeans, uh, and, and yeah, it's it was it was quite remarkable. Then having conversations with clients in in Paris uh, who had bought some significant pieces as well. Yeah. You know, what I also think is what, in the last two years, especially when it was still very much heavily under this COVID sort of, you know, influence, the work was a bit different. You could see this especially, I think, in the sort of satellite activities, for example, the Unlimited. Unlimited is obviously a part of Art Basel, a very important part where, you know, there's singular work showing by important artists, often large scale. And this year I was incredibly impressed. I thought it was a wonderful, wonderful show. You could really see that there was work produced for this purpose. It was very, you know, kind of rich in quality and nuance. There was a fantastic Avedon installation that absolutely, you know, blew my mind. And this level of quality, I thought was really back to the standard of pre-COVID times. Juliet, uh, you uh, zipped over on Wednesday. You went on a shopping trip with your friend Sabina. No shopping. Uh, no shopping. <laughs> I wish. Uh, anyway. I wish. I'll tell you what I would have liked to shop. But impressions? 
No, I, I very much enjoyed it. I, um, I, I, I'm a big fan of sculpture and I, I loved Yayoi Kusama's pumpkin. I know that it's sure. quite known, but um, what would I give to have that on my terrace? And also Eduardo Chiyida's bronze sculptures with the wood. And I was just thinking, um, how lucky are they who can afford to have those in their homes? Beautiful pieces. And then the Run Dog, Eat Dog by Christopher. Well, I then Googled it. It's just a pro- poster with the written vertically Run Dog dog eat dog over a million dollars tell me about that yeah i mean chris wall holds a very very stable place but if you're into sculpture i wonder if you saw the simone lee sculpture a blue vase like no kind of a a, almost like a like a person hide well simone lee really got a lot of attention last year because she won the golden lion in in the venice biennial fantastic sculptor american and she works with the idea of women being vessels holding a lot of the culture and the heritage of of their particular communities. And she makes these very beautiful anthropomorphical vase going into, for example, in this case, it was shells that were applied there. And this is definitely, if you're into sculpture, somebody to keep a close eye on. Uh, just tell me, going back to the market, of course, you're with a bank uh, as well. And you know, not that you can disclose exactly what your customers are looking for, <laughs> but but how much of, of let's say your role is just guiding, uh, and and this is sort of you know already a sort of top ten of what's interesting, versus also pushing people towards markets which are heating up, um, whether that's regions of the world, specific galleries. Uh, how how intense is the guidance that you have to deliver? Well, I think our part is to sort of twosome. We have, of course, sort of an idea that we want to get our clients interested in art if they're not yet, because we think it is a wonderful place to be. It's an exciting market to participate in. And of course, I mean, this is what we do. It's it's a very interesting investment opportunity, of course, if you do it right, right? It's also, I think, the one singular place where you can Uh, yeah, lose money quickly because, of course, the market prices on average are pretty high. And if you don't have a good idea of, you know, what might be the indicators, how this is developing, better to get some help. That's what we're there for. And then we have some collectors who are very specifically interested in particular pieces. And when we're there, of course, we try to help them field them. Often there's long waiting times involved. You can't, this is an experience as most, especially young collectors have, you get there, you're equipped with, you know, the money you want to spend and an idea of what you want to have and you still can't have it, right? So we're also there to, to help maneuver that field of waiting lists and really kind of applying for a very sought after artwork. And Juliet, on a Wednesday during your tour, uh, did you get a sense of yeah, how many people were you know, punters who sort of you know, might be interested because, you know, you know, maybe there are some pieces you might have wanted uh, for your white walls. Not that you have that many left, but versus... <laughs> I mean, versus day, day trippers with their sandwiches. I think I saw a lot of day trippers, honestly. And then I found it interesting that s- just certain galleries would actually put the price and otherwise you had to keep going and asking, mm-hmm. which I'm sure puts off some people. Why is that? Yeah, absolutely. Nobody puts prices. Really. But then the American galleries had, there was an LA gallery and he said, of course, we're going to write the price right away. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I wonder. I mean, first of all, maybe I can add something to the conversation that really stood out to me is the question of pre-sales, if I may do that little excursion, because what we, of course, have got a bit more acquainted with over the COVID time is this idea of buying art digitally much more, right? You used to have really this idea of people, you know, the the fair opening at stores at 11 on the Tuesday and then people literally running to the booth where they may have gotten the one condo that was, on, you know, still available. And people now, of course, over the last two years have bought a lot more online, much previews or whatever format there was that they could do that in. And this is still very much 
you know, a tendency. And we, for example, when we inquired about work that was in previews, in some cases, even a week before the fair, this was already sold. So one thing where I think a lot of people don't openly put prices is that not everything is available. Mm. And they Very don't fun. want to because they're really not supposed to. They don't want to come into the booth and say, well, actually, half of this is spoken for. You can't have it anyway. And maybe that's a reason why, right? And I think that the opacity of the art market that we've talked about in many formats, in many ways, of course, that's being a bit disrupted, which I think is healthy and correct, but it's still there. There's still this mystery of like, I'm not really going to tell you or you have to ask me about it. And, uh, you know, I worked in a gallery before I joined the bank. I was an art dealer on that side of the of the game and of course it's an opportunity to get, engage in conversation so if somebody you know asks you for a prize there's the open door to you know offer the ruina and have a chat <laughs> no i'm, I'm exaggerating yeah, yeah. but it is a, it is a moment of, of dialogue for the for the dealer so i think that's also a reason why they don't do that and over the past few years we saw this a little bit of a reinvention in terms of what the buying game looks like. There was, you know, Art Basel was organizing concierges you yeah. know, with with cameras and they would sort of take you on a virtual tour. Was that happening or has that died away? It sounds like there was so much energy back in or were there still customers around the world who wanted to be there virtually? I think that was a bit of a hybrid this year. I mean, I, I didn't see it quite as much in person. The last year, you're absolutely right. There were so many people walking around doing this. Um, but I think there's still both of these worlds coexist at the moment. I think that's, that's completely true. True, yeah. And uh, just before before we go, of course, uh, I don't want to say this is the kickoff because it seems that there's also major art fairs all over the place. And it's incredible how the Art Basel brand has grown. Uh, yeah. That, it, of course, lives in Hong Kong. It lives in Miami. It, it lives in Paris now um, as as well. You know, again, we talk about a week of Ruinar and, uh, and, 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 and Champagne and everything else. We've got a conflict on the other side of, the, of Europe. We've got a lot of people, yeah. you know, concerned about uh, where is the economy going. But at the top end of the market, it seems that things are quite bulletproof. I think so. Yeah. I mean, the, the sales that were recorded or reported, I should say, th they were quite up there, really. I mean, talk about, you know, a wonderful spider by Louise Bourgeois that has an had in their booth, which was sold for, I think, something like 22.5 million or some high price like that. A Rothko, though, that Aquavella showed, my last update is it wasn't sold yet. So that's a really high ticket, you know, thought after item, incredibly blue chip, of course, I think it was something like 60 million. I think where a lot of buying was happening was around the 100 to 500 mark, right? So I think this is maybe reflective of the market. Still a lot of money, a lot of eagerness to, to buy into, you know, these very promising works. But the very, very high ticket, I'm, I wonder. I, I can't really judge because I didn't ask all of the galleries. But it, the, the feeling seems to be that there's more collectible range now of, of market. And if I may add something really quick, before I go, of course, Stella, um, that there's a lot of collateral um, fairs too. And one that was absolutely brimming this year was Basel Social Club. So if anybody's still planning to go today, I think this is also really recommendable because, of course, there's lots of energy in the very young market too. I really rock. Stick around for a little bit later. Of course, you got to get your wine results as well. <laughs> but uh, Emma Nelson is in London with the news headlines. Thank you very much indeed, Tyler. The US Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, is in China. His trip comes nearly five months after a previous visit was postponed when a Chinese spy balloon was shot down over the US. Russia's President Vladimir Putin has dismissed a peace plan put forward by a group of African leaders seeking to mediate in the war in Ukraine. President Putin told the group he believed many of their proposals were misguided. A draft climate law goes to a referendum in Switzerland today. Opponents argue that the planned transition to renewable energy is too expensive and will cause electricity demand to explode.
And a plan to light up a giant statue of a naked man at night has been criticised by residents of an English village because they fear it will distract passing motorists. The 26-foot-high statue, called the Yoxman, has already been labelled a danger to traffic by some locals because of people staring at it as they drive past along the A12 road in East Suffolk. The amply endowed artwork is one of the largest bronze sculptures in the UK. It was erected two years ago in the grounds of 16th century Cockfield Hall. Those are the headlines. Back to you, Tyler, in Zurich. Emma, absolutely delightful. <laughs> of course, have you have you actually passed uh, this uh, yachtsman in person? No, I haven't. Uh, but if I did, I think I might crash. <laughs> Tell, just you, you, you do need to, uh, I don't want to say the word expand. What do I want to say? I would like to say you just need to tell us <laughs> more about the commissioning of this and why the local council, it, it, you know, listen, they knew this thing was coming and, yeah. and then, and suddenly now they've, they've, uh, they've, they've got question marks uh, around it. So what do they think of a hedge or, or are there other sort of other mitigating I, factors? I that think we're talking in? full forest here if we're going to protect the, 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 the drivers. It's, he's a big, he's a very big boy. Um, I, I showed him to my to my husband last night, and the first thing he said was, "Wow." Um, so he's, he's he was he's been around a couple of years. He's he's just sort of a, a big bronze man. Uh, they already have a little lay-by so that you can actually pull in and have a look if you like. But they they want to get full beam torches out for him when when you're driving past at night, which would be quite distracted. There's no doubt. I'll send you a picture. Okay, indeed. We can, we can reflect on that a little bit later in the program. Emma Nelson, thank you very much for that. We are heading off to Bangkok also in more ways than one. It's, it's a little bit the start of, of, of party season. Unfortunately, not everybody uh, is, is invited, but you are invited if uh, you're going to be in Bangkok uh, this Thursday and you can reach uh, our Hannah Grundy who looks after events. Uh, she's at hg at monocle.com because we're having um, a lovely uh, event at uh, Shenin's uh, amazing, amazing uh, courtyard space at their showrooms in Tonglor, in Bangkok. Uh, so that's fantastic. We're also going to Bangkok right now because our Gwen Robinson is standing by, who's not going to be at the party, I, I understand, because she's heading to Tokyo. Is that still the case, Gwen? And so Well, uh, sorry, Tyler. Yes, Gwen, I I couldn't change the ticket, unfortunately. Blame Jap- Japan Airlines. Okay, well, Gwen, we can never have a discussion about cancellation uh, changes, etc., because it is... A big, it's been many big weeks in, in Thailand, of course, off the back of the election. This period that we have at the moment, uh, of course, to yeah, investigate, uh, to, uh, of course, peruse documents uh, and, and try to move Thailand uh, to, uh, to, of course, uh, putting a new government in power. Um, and this is a critical week ahead indeed. Uh, tell us uh, what's happening, because... The, the sort of the last I was reading in the Bangkok Post yesterday, uh, you know, on, on one side is is of course uh, you know many calling for the the move forward party uh, to to calm down. Uh, they're not uh, the government of the day yet. There is still an incumbent uh, government and prime minister, uh, and he is still the leader of the country. So a little bit of like get back in your box, uh, move forward. Um, but what else is happening around this, Gwen? Well. <laughs> That is probably one of the most difficult questions you could ask concerning Thailand right now because everything is about as clear as mud and getting murkier and murkier. So let's just say all options are on the table. The elections were May the 14th. As most people who, who look at Thailand know, there was a stunning victory by Move Forward, the Young Progressive Party, which won the majority of or the largest um, number of votes. 
with uh, the populist opposition party, Puatai, in second place, the party that was set up by the exiled former Prime Minister Thaksin. And basically, it's really, I think, a competition between, excuse me, <coughs> between those two or possibly together they will form a coalition. So at the moment, it seems that the popular thinking is that we'll end up with a, a rather unwieldy-sounding coalition of eight parties, including Move Forward and Puatai, uh, and a lot of small parties, if they can make it through this combined vote of the combined uh, Houses of Parliament, which has to come up in uh, late July. And what this coalition would need is a clear majority of the combined Houses of Parliament. Now, that's the rub, because the upper house is entirely appointed senators, appointed by the ruling party, the government, uh, uh, some years ago. And uh, that is the difficult thing. Even as it stands, this coalition can't get the numbers. They need at least 50 or more senators to side with them. But by nature of their appointment. These senators are not radicals, progressives, or even reformers uh, generally. So, so that's Brent, the complication. So, uh, yeah, I mean, a complication <laughs> amongst many. Now, of course, uh, we also have a lot of question marks around uh, Move Forward uh, as well. Uh, and, and, and one of those question marks uh, it has to do uh, with the issue of, and, and just to sort of bring everyone up to speed, of course, uh, you know anyone who's been running, they're not allowed to hold stakes in media companies, etc. Um, and and now here we have a question mark as to whether or not, of course, uh, move forward. Uh, of course, leader uh, had released uh, his his shares had not. So there's a I would say a sort of a side investigation uh, going on around this as well. Yes, in the kind of you couldn't make it up. Uh, well, the Thai politics is at this point, you're quite right. And also to pick up on your very good point at the beginning about this get back in your box feeling about move forward, getting out there and basically behaving like a government elect and people saying, hey, you're not government yet and you may not be the government. That's quite understandable because move forward is this charismatic young leader, Peter Lim Jarunrat, is positioning himself to basically make it harder and harder to rob him of what Move Forward is saying is their rightful victory. Peter inherited uh, shares, very minor amount of shares, tiny, in a now defunct media company called uh, ITV um, some time ago and uh, claims he declared it ahead of the elections to the Anti-Corruption Commission. This apparently is not enough. Uh, this could be used now in the what we're seeing is a kind of weaponization of the law. I think uh, in the aftermath of the elections, there are at least 71 cases being um, investigated against various MPs uh, who won their constituencies or their seats uh, and could be disqualified on a whole range of charges, everything from allegations of vote buying to what you just pointed out was Peter's tiny little 0.7% or something shareholding that was inherited from his uh, family. So if this is uh, used against him, if he is disqualified, there is another kicker, which is as head of the party, he signed all the registration uh, papers for every one of the move forward candidates. I just don't think the government, the ruling uh, or the establishment is going to go there because if they try and disqualify all these 
move forward uh, candidate to one, I think there really would be such pushback uh, that I'm not saying it, it, it would lead to people pouring out on the streets, although you can't rule that out, but it would be a very bad look uh, for this uh, for the general establishment in, in Thailand. So that's that's a possibility. And finally, the other option is that it all gets too difficult and poor Thai, which only trailed Move Forward by just 10 votes. It got 141 seats to Move Forward's 151. Poor Thai, uh, led by uh, Thaksin Shinawatra's charismatic young daughter, Um uh, Ying is the nickname, um, could very well do the dirty on Move Forward and uh, actually cozy up to the establishment parties, including the party that won the third largest number of votes, Boom Jai Thai, run by the inimitable uh, Anutin, who is the Deputy Prime Minister of Thailand and commonly known as Cannabis King, being the man who pushed through the cannabis legislation. Very conservative, very pro-royal, and very obviously against Move Forward's entire position of wanting to reform this uh, system, this draconian system that puts people in jail for even criticising the monarchy. So clearly that formulation, if Pua Thai dumped Move Forward, would leave Move Forward out in the cold as the opposition party. But uh, of course, they would be the strongest opposition that Thailand's ever seen if that happened. Gwen, just uh, I, I want to come back and uh, I will put you on the spot because, uh, of course, you've been covering the territory for uh, quite some time. Uh, but I do want to ask you uh, and, and and I want to sort of get your, your your call on things. But let's go to look at the, the Thai economy in the meantime. Uh, whether you look at the Nikkei, you look at the Bangkok Post, there's a lot of conversation about, yeah, I mean, the longer this goes on, what this does for the markets, what this does for, for the confidence of, of inward investment, uh, Thai brands, you know, being out in the world, uh, not to mention, not to mention how they function domestically. What is the, the take and the read on, on the state of, of the economy? And, and of course, yeah, the sooner there's a, a government in place, the better. Um, what that means for, uh, of course, the economy in terms of who gets in is another story. Um, but what is the feeling on the part of the markets right now? Well, interestingly, I mean, the markets have moved uneasily. I mean, it's really too early to tell because as we described, nobody knows anything at this point about what will transpire. But they have typically been trending sort of down, uh, very thin. Uh, people are saying a lot of foreigners are selling out of Thailand. I mean, they may, you know, investors are so fickle. They'll, they'll flood back in if they think things are resolved. But interestingly, I was at a dinner last night with a, a very, there was a very, very well-connected person there involved in a sort of concerned group of sort of business and civic figures and was telling me all about a, a big meeting they had during the week to assess uh, what their views were. And he says out of 12 very, you know, very sort of influential people, at least half actually thought that Move Forward would make it in to some form of coalition, may not last that long because of the various circumstances we're talking about, the constraints. But overall, most of them were kind of resigned to the possibility that Move Forward be, would be there However, the business people are nervous. I mean, Move Forward has basically, part of its platform is to break up the hold, the sort of monopolies that some of the very big Thai companies have on things like, uh, for example, alcohol. And uh, they've got a very big uh, position on, on um, breaking up the alcohol uh, uh, business to um, free it up, uh, liberalizing a lot of other areas that are currently quite tightly uh, regulated. And, you know, a big one which does make people nervous is that 
you know, move forward has already made a very big stand on Myanmar, uh, where we're seeing some pretty horrendous violence in uh, the wake of the coup two years ago and a lot of human rights violations. It's not just a human rights position. I think this uh, Peter, the head of Move Forward, has basically said they will end this policy of appeasing the junta and uh, actively support resistance groups uh, uh, that are standing up against the junta. And this has totally rattled the security establishment and also the conservatives in Thailand because, you know, the, the nature of the relationship between Thailand and Myanmar is absolutely critical in terms of trade, economy, a lot of gas comes from Myanmar over to Thailand and border trade is huge uh, for Thailand. So I think there's some nervousness about the, the, the young bucks sort of getting in and saying enough of this. And uh, we'll see what happens with markets from here on in. But I should say the critical date will be June 21, which is not too far away. The Election Commission has to finalise the results and formalise who is in and who is not in the uh, Parliament and as I said there's various challenges they will probably get to sort of possible disqualifications later on but the coalition has said that they will finalize and announce uh, shortly after the June 21 date so we will know much more then and I think until then a lot of investors particularly in the markets are on a wait-and-see position um, you know some of them are hoping that we'll end up with that conservative configuration that I mentioned but the other thing I should mention is Taksin, the former, you know, prime minister who's lived in voluntary exile in mainly Dubai for the for the last years since he was ousted in uh, in uh, the last coup before last, um, has declared that he has full intention to finally return to his homeland uh, on July 26th to celebrate his birthday and stay here. So that has also rattled a lot of people. And um, you couldn't, I mean, everything, I guess, has converged into a kind of perfect political storm in Thailand. And I think actually a lot of people are, are gobsmacked. They're just kind of waiting to see what happens next. Gwen, finally, on the topic of what happens next, I'm going to put you on the spot. Uh, you know, if we think uh, of, yeah, of course, uh, what would be good for brand Thailand, but it can't just be that. Uh, if you had to call who is going to be PM, are you in the, the world of, uh, of Peter uh, Lim Jirunrat or... Which way are you heading? <laughs> well, of course, I think the best thing, if we're worrying about brand Thailand, I mean, I think move forward and Peter uh, and his, uh, his colleagues are possibly one of the best things that's happened to Thailand. There's a lot of news in the region, Southeast Asia, about how this victory for move forward is actually putting a, you know, putting a real sort of cracker under a lot of other uh, movements in Southeast Asia of course, we have elections coming up in Cambodia next month, and that's an, you think this was sort of challenging. Cambodia, Hun Sen, uh, you know, who's been at the helm for God knows how long, um, is uh, finally sort of going to election and probably handing over to his son. But in the process, we're seeing a lot of crackdown on opposition. But, you know, a lot of young people, but even just reformers, whether they're middle class, older or younger, have taken a lot of heart from Move Forward. And I think... You know, basically, it can only be good for brand Thailand if Move Forward is robbed of victory, if they are sidelined. They will be a very strong opposition party. But what we might see is either a property developer with no experience in politics, uh, Seta, who's uh, one of the heads of Poor Thai Party, become prime minister, or there are sort of there are sort of far more 
let's say, uh, unappealing options, including the uh, increasingly decrepit uh, former Deputy Prime Minister, Prawit Wongsuan. Um, and that would probably not be good for Brand Thailand. Uh, but it all depends how you look at Thailand. I can say that with tourism roaring back, I don't think tourists and people engaged in that kind of side of the economy really care at all. Thailand just carries on. You know, malls are full, tourists are coming back, restaurants are buzzing, clubs are opening, that sort of thing. So, um, you know, there's a disconnect there. And I think we're really talking about two Thailands and two scenarios. Gwen Robinson uh, in Bangkok, so we're going to miss you uh, this coming week. Uh, but anyway, if any listeners are heading to Bangkok uh, or if you're in Bangkok uh, this coming Thursday, we look forward to seeing you at our event uh, in Tonglor. It's just gone at 10.48 uh, here in Zurich. We're going away for a short break. When we come back, off to Tel Aviv. Monaco's June issue contains our annual art special, sharing what's ahead this summer, which collectors to watch, and bringing you the best of Art Basel and also the Venice Architecture Biennale. The issue contains powerful photos from our report from Syria, visits a piece of iconic architecture in Annecy, and explores the success behind a Portuguese pencil maker. Elsewhere, we check in on three tasty startups and meet the people ditching the day job for life as a Mediterranean farmer. All of this, plus our regular reviews and travel inspiration in Monocle's June issue. Order your copy today or subscribe to get instant access online. You're back with Monocle on Sunday with me, Tyler Brule, just at 10.49 here. We're heading over to Tel Aviv right now. Happy to say that uh, Aleph Ben is on the line, editor-in-chief, of course, of Haaretz uh, newspaper. Shalom, good morning. Good morning. So uh, tell us, uh, it was interesting just listening to our Gwen Robinson in Bangkok a little bit earlier. She said, you know, on one side, you know, there's the politics of, of course, of, uh, of Thailand, and then there's the parallel world uh, of, of just, you know, people wanting to, to go there as, as tourists uh, uh, to enjoy life, etc. And I'm wondering, uh, how, first, uh, how is summer shaping up in Israel? Well, uh, as always, uh, hot and more and more humid. And and and, and that aside, and, and 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 that aside, of course, this is a time uh, when yeah, much of uh, the the Jewish diaspora from around the world does does come back. As much as, of course, you know, tourists as well. And of course, we see a flight of Israelis heading to Greece and head, heading uh, heading elsewhere. But if uh, I just want to maybe start on on tourism and and the economy, and of course, always many question marks from a security point of view. People, of course, uh, see what they see what's happening on the streets. Uh, but uh, but what's your read on it, Aleph? Uh, uh, in terms of in, in inbounds to Israel right now, look when when, uh, when they walk in the Tel Aviv and the you know in the promenade on the beach or in the, the main streets, uh, you're going to hear a lot of English and French spoken and occasionally some other languages. So yes, people are traveling. It's uh, I think the second summer already post COVID, and uh, people are still uh, I think thirsty for uh, for the travel that they were missing for several years. So let's um, okay. Let's, we've got we've got tourism and, and maybe the lighter side of things uh, out yeah. of the way. Tell us, uh, of the, course, the beach is full, but but the politics. But you know, the beach in Tel Aviv is full of people as we speak, and only going to become fuller as the high school kids are going to the summer vacation later this week. But uh, I think the most important story in Israel is still the 
the efforts of uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to become a more authoritarian leader and uh, to once again eat away the, the independence and, uh, and the power of the judiciary in Israel. And uh, although the first effort to overhaul the system and uh, create a system where the, the judges and justices uh, basically are appointed by the by the governing coalition without any checks and balances. This was rebuffed by, by a massive uh, public protest against it, but uh, it's still on the table. And only a couple of hours ago, Netanyahu said in a cabinet meeting that this week they are going to start moving forward with the judicial reform. This is meant also to please his right-wing partners in his party and his coalition who are unhappy with uh, the slow pace of change as they see it. And at the same time, uh, they're trying to reform the, the state and the system and policies and a lot of other issues to make uh, a public education for, for Jews in Israel more religious with more budget uh, allocated to strengthen the religious part of the curriculum expense of uh, general, general studies, especially for uh, religious kids, kids from religious families. And then, and then uh, only today they are going to approve uh, easing the rules of new construction for Jews in the West Bank, which means deepening the occupation, building more settlements, uh, and not listening to international criticism of the settlement effort and moving forward. And again, this is the uh, this is the main issue for the far right in Israel. And last but not least, the Minister of Public Security, who is uh, national, it's called now National Security, who is uh, one of the leaders of the far right, is now asking to have uh, wide-ranging authorities to, uh, to, uh, to order administrative detention, that is holding people without trial or without even seeing a judge by proper arrest, uh, under the guise of fighting crime. Because we have, a, we have an enormous, very bloody crime wave in Israel, especially in the Arab society in Israel, with dozens of people murdered from, uh, since the beginning of the year. And the government is, on one hand, the government and the police fail to tackle uh, this crime wave seriously. Or, and, and on the other hand, the police is in the hands of a very racist minister and, and uh, who's, who's built his career inciting against Palestinians, against uh, the Arab minority in Israel, etc. So it's a very delicate situation. And then the minister is trying to use it as a pretext to have even more authority and even less checks and balances over what he does. Um, Aleph, uh, just uh, we're going to uh, keep it uh, tight here, but this is, of course, uh, covered the domestic side, but obviously uh, in terms of uh, foreign policy and, and something which is uh, certainly probably keeping the foreign ministry busy as much as Mr. Netanyahu's office. And that is, of course, yeah. the discussions and, and uh, that we're hearing between, of course, Iran and, and the U.S. and what this means for Israel. Well, the, Iran and the U.S., according to uh, recent uh, stories published uh, by Haaretz and us and followed up elsewhere, the U.S. and Iran are trying to reach kind of an, uh, an off-the-record deal without any signing ceremony, but basically to go back to the terms of the deal, of, of the 2015 deal that was later on scrapped by President Trump when he decided to leave the agreement. And, uh, and the idea is to hold Iran uh, where it is 
in terms of uranium enrichment, not to move forward to 93% enrichment, which is a weapons grade, uh, in return for easing some of the sanctions, uh, uh, you know, releasing some of the frozen assets of Iran in, in Western banks, etc. Uh, but uh, interestingly, unlike the previous agreement eight years ago, when Netanyahu launched a global campaign, especially a campaign in the United States against then President Obama, this time what we hear from uh, Netanyahu is mostly silence. Netanyahu and other Israeli officials are looking the other way. Uh, the other way is partly an effort to reach a deal between the U.S., Israel, and Saudi Arabia, in which Saudi Arabia would get all kinds of weapon systems and uranium enrichment uh, uh, technology from the United States or approved by the United States in return for normalization with Israel. Uh, clearly, this would be an enormous diplomatic coup for Netanyahu, who so far has been banned from uh, invitation uh, to the White House to meet Biden, and uh, it would be an enormous achievement for Israeli foreign policy in terms of being accepted into the region and by by a, by a regional power like Saudi Arabia. Indeed. Uh, but and it remains I'll, to be seen. Aleph Ben, we're going to uh, keep an eye on that story uh, with, of course, you and uh, your colleagues uh, at Haaretz. Uh, that was Aleph Ben, editor-in-chief of Haaretz newspaper, joining us uh, from Tel Aviv. Just approaching uh, the end of the show, that means it's time for Chandra's recommendations. She, got, she received a series of briefs uh, from our colleagues at the top of the show. Uh, and I'm going to start with you, Emma, in London, uh, what, what were you looking for from wine recommendation from Chandra? Something to drink in the rain, please. Well, at least you drink when it's raining. This is good. <laughs> so I, you, you said you drank rosé before, so let's stay in the rosé world. Okay. It's from the Côte de Provence. It's Clos Cibon. It's, a, it's for Tiboran. It's the grape, so it's a very indigenous special grape. And the colour is not rosé. It's like a Hermes orange, but it's still... A rosé, and I think it's a little bit more, 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 more complex, and it will fit the rain. Thank How's you that? very much. Sounds good for this weather as well, doesn't it, Emma? Perfect, and then Hermes orange is a perfect description for a good glass of wine. Absolutely, <laughs> Juliet. What, what were you looking for? You wanted a variety of tips, but we don't have much time. But I love her tips, and what do I drink on a terrace? But like, so with, tips. with lots Hang of people, with Tyler, and uh, so it's a new discovery I did. It's from a very famous chateau in Bo- in, in Bordeaux, uh, Chateau Lafleur. They do a white wine. It's called uh, Grand Village Blanc. Uh, and it's so stimulating and and, um, and intense that you don't drink it too fast because it keeps you busy. So, you, know, you you don't empty the case immediately. Okay, Ed Stalker's on the line in Milan. Ed. A new crisp cold white from near me here in Italy. So, uh, I usually go for exceptions uh, on wineries and there's a famous one, the Conte Vistarino in Oltrepo Pavese and they do Pinot Noir and sparkling wine, but they launched two years ago or three years ago a Riesling and, uh, you know, North Italy Riesling. So, try to discover this aromatic um, seduction. Works for you, Ed? Definitely. Good. And finally, Aurelia, something champagne, champagne and more champagne. Exactly. While admiring art, what else than Ruina? You will see how, how this vineyard artisan champagne can blow away a, a Ruina or a Moe. So I go always for Agrapar. It's, it's a family business and they have all kinds of styles. But with Agrapar, you're safe. And we can find it in Switzerland. Yeah, you find it. You find Excellent. It. Thank you very much, everyone. Juliet Lindy, Chandra Kurt, Emma Nelson. Thanks to all of you. Also, Ed Stalker, Gwen Robinson, Aurelia Rauch as well. And Aleph Ben in Tel Aviv. Our producers today, Desiree Bentley, Emma Nelson. Our studio manager, of course, was Desi and Nora Hall in London. I'm Tyler Boulay. Back next Sunday. Have a good weekend. Goodbye. <laughs>